welcome to hey great shot this is the great shot podcast a cracked rackets and tennis channel podcast network production my name is alex gruskin as you listeners are well aware given that it is not only the end of another fantastic season of atp and wta tennis but that it is the final month of what has been a fantastic decade of tennis in the 2010s. We here at the Great Shot Podcast have been in the midst of our best of the decade series, looking at the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the past 10 years of action. Now, we are not arrogant enough to think we are the only people who are going to undertake this exercise. You know, it's the end of the decade. We're not the only ones who can read a calendar. So, you know, many others in the tennis uh, world have been conducting their own best of the decade exercises. Some of them good, some of them not so good. One of my my favorites, and I think as listeners know, we've had this guest before, one of our favorite tennis journalists, tennis podcast hosts to talk to about the bigger subjects, in particular the next-gen ATP guys, which we will be talking about today, Ben Rothenberg of Racket Magazine, of the New York Times, of No Challenges Remaining podcast fame, uh, was kind enough to come on to our, dec- uh, to our Best of the Decade series today to talk about the next-gen ATP guys. Now, we have traditionally, the, the first two times we have done this at the end of the year, done tier rankings, breaking down the many next-gen players into various tiers, Grand Slam champions, potential top 10 players, guys who are going to last in the top 50 for a while, etc. But given that it was the end of the decade, we wanted to change things up a little bit and look at the most promising players uh, next-gen-wise of the 2010s. Now, for our listeners, next-gen, meaning born after me, born 1996 or later, and I feel like this is the last year I can say that because at 23, these players aren't exactly fully here, but they we certainly have a bigger uh, body of work for a bunch of them. So those are the players we focus on today. In this part one of the conversation, Ben and I focus on the more obvious names, the the people you listeners are certainly well acquainted with by now. Uh, and we talk about why we found them the most promising uh, in the past decade and why we are most excited about their potential in terms of slam wins and just the accomplishments they can have tennis-wise over the next 10 years, in particular the guys we focus on today, Alex Virev, Stefano Tsitsipas, Daniil Medvedev, and two other players that I'm not going to reveal now because it's a position of disagreement between me and Ben, and that's always where the most fun conversations start when we have a guest like Ben, who again, never afraid to give his opinion, uh, come on the podcast. So huge shout out to Ben. Uh, But with that in mind, we hope you enjoy part one of our GSP Best of the Decade conversation about the next-gen ATP players. Joining us now on our Best of the Decade Great Shot podcast, for those of you who follow tennis closely or got into the game over the past 10 years, tonight's guest has provided tennis coverage equal to that of any of his journalistic peers. Whether the topic be pay equity or the many ways to grow tennis as a sport, there is no topic in this game about which he will not report. And though some on tennis Twitter treat his opinions as outright tennis misdemeanors and high crimes, it is nevertheless (laughs) our pleasure to be joined tonight by Ben Rothenberg of the New York Times. Ben, hey, great shot. I know trilogies are where things gone wrong, but welcome back to the Great Shot Podcast. Thank you for, for that. I, I I have felt impeachable at some times, I suppose, <laughs> uh, on tennis Twitter, for sure. I'm actually, like, I think people on tennis Twitter, like, well, there's a better mix than there is on, like, tennis Reddit, which I don't go on much, <laughs> but they really don't like me there. Uh, I almost feel like I should, like, go do an Ask Me Anything or something just to clear the air. 
I don't. I don't know. I'm, I, do you know? Are you on tennis Reddit? I try and That's where I really feel like my haters congregate. I I don't, yeah, I don't, I'm not into it. Yeah, the problem is I had a college roommate who would just send the weirdest stuff off of Reddit. And I'm like, nope, that's not a website for me. Like, I can just avoid that one altogether. Yeah. There's a lot of weird stuff And I should say. I I wish them well, but I just don't, I don't think they, I don't think they get me and it's mutual. So, yeah. (laughs) Well, I hope you like the rhymes I went with. I left a red hair and dare. I was going to say, look in his Twitter mentions if you dare and hopefully you'll get over, you know, the fact he has red hair. There's a Ben Rothenberg joke in there, or Rothlisberger. See, I confuse you two. Um, Yeah. But I left some on the table. But still, Ben, you know, again, it's part three. Appreciate you taking the time to come back on the podcast. What's been up with you as you uh, enjoy your one month off from the season? Yeah, no, it's been been pretty good. Some projects I'm working on at home, and I leave for Australia on New Year's Eve. So uh, off-season's been pretty good. I haven't been on the road too much since the U.S. Open. So that's nice. It's kind of my annual, annual hibernation time, so to speak. Uh, so that's been nice, and uh, yeah, enjoying the tennis season. You know, long as ever. I didn't watch any of the Davis Cup because it wasn't really on. Well, I watched a little bit of what was on TV here, which was not much. But uh, <laughs> otherwise, otherwise kept a relatively medium-sized attention to the sport in the fall. But I'm looking forward to seeing it again in, in next year. And it could be, I think 2020 is going to be a very eventful year in tennis for sure. So do you fly on New Year's Eve? Do you get no New Year's Day by the time you get to Australia? Yes, which I'm really <laughs> excited about. It's the worst holiday. Um, but I've done that a couple times before, or at least once before. I missed New Year's and was on a plane when the clock struck midnight. Uh, yeah, it works well for me. It's a lot cheaper flying on a holiday and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah. And then I, I get no, because you miss a day going to Australia. So I will leave on the 31st and arrive on uh, the 2nd. So yeah. I won't have a January 1st at all. We haven't even spoken a word of tennis, and you've already given our listeners a take to disagree with. That's why it's fun to have you. New Year's the worst holiday. I don't know if the, it, it depends on your circumstances, I guess. I mean, there are worse holidays, sure. It's <laughs> like, you know, I mean, it, in theory, but like New Year's is just so much buildup. And so much just like, let's go out and like all like really pretend like we're having a great time and then like count down to something and then it's over <laughs> and like, that's it. And it's always just like, oh yeah, okay. Like this club's like $200 to get in, like open bar and it's their breakfast at like 4am um, <laughs> and there's like a line, but no, and you make reservations in October. Uh, no, I don't like any of it. Uh, maybe it's better in some places. I have had like chill New Year's is at home with people, but then it's just like, it's not even like any different from any other night. So yeah, no, I would agree. And, with but that. I do like, but I do like uh, list making, which is a <laughs> sort of a sort of a sort of part of December, which ends on New Year's and is prompted by the New Year. And so that I like. I mean, this we're going to be doing some listing on this show. Just to, we're in the middle of our decade lists on NCR right now, so. Uh, Good times with list making. Yeah, I know you, you like a list. I was going to say, you beat me to it. And by the way, you really haven't experienced New Year's until you've had the thrills of Sarasota, Florida, where the average age at the bar is at least 62, and the bar is still well, closed those, by 10. Look, those people are just happy to make it to another year, honestly. <laughs> I feel like New Year's in Florida is like a little bit more moving than it is in D.C. That's true. There's like a pineapple that drops in the city, but like you know, it's just like a little white pineapple that comes. It's fine. I, I, I agree with you. But you're absolutely right, especially in a year like this. Uh, not only can you recap the 2019 season, but it's 2019, as you mentioned on your podcast, No Challenges Remaining, as well as here at Crack Rackets and a bunch of places. It's given us all time to look back at the past 10 years of tennis the big takeaways how the games changed the best storylines all
all of those various things. I know you and Courtney, I believe you've released your top 10 men of the decade. Top 10 women coming out soon, right? Yeah, so it's our most defining players of the decade. We took we talked for a while about what kind of criteria we wanted because just doing like best or most successful is not all that fun. We wanted people who kind of left almost more of like a cultural impact on the sport. And um, so that's why, like, both of us, for example, have, like, Curious at number six on our lists, which we put the list on Twitter uh, today and after having published them in the episode a few days ago. And people who don't listen to us got mad without listening, and so it was pretty standard Twitter behavior. Um, But overall, it was good. I think people have enjoyed them. They were a lot of fun to do. I mean, we did uh, – they're very different exercises, the men's and women's lists. I mean, the men – like, there's uh, only six Grand Slam champions this decade, period. And in the past decade, the decade we're still in. And the women, there's, like, I don't even know, like, 17 or 18 I think or it's 19. 19, yeah, there you go. So, like, if you just picked the women who won two or more Grand Slams, you'd already have 10. That'd be your <laughs> list. Done. And so, like, that's no fun. So we tried to make reasons for various snubs. And the women's list coming out in a few days, whenever I, I don't know when this is posting, but in a while, um, the uh, the women's list uh, there's some there's some brutal snubs from both me and Courtney, some galling galling omissions on each of our lists. Yeah, so we did. Hopefully, people will will see it appropriately. We did an earlier podcast on the men and women who came closest to winning a slam, but ultimately didn't. And obviously in the men, that's more prevalent. But for the women, you still have players like the Sibylkovas or the Radwanskas of the world, and they're mm-hmm. not slam champions. So you leave them off. You know, If you go strictly by results, you'll leave them off the list. I think there's also more near misses on the women's side than on the men's side. Oh, certainly. And that's also true. I mean, like, you can talk about, like, Madison Keys Mm -hmm. came, like, plausibly closer to winning a slam than, like, I don't know, Isner. How about Pliskova? Yeah, of course, Pliskova. We could go through them all. I mean, like, Vinci was in a slam final. Exactly. Uh, Radvanska, you mentioned. Sibylkova, you mentioned. um, Svitolina has been a, you know, one Singapore. uh, Not that she came that close to winning a slam. But (laughs) um, anyway, yeah, there's there's a few different people you could pick. Lasicki had a very good... Wimbledon stretch of years for a while there and didn't get a, a title. Uh, yeah, you could do a bunch of different stuff with yeah. uh, near misses in women's tennis. Yeah. Like Reva was number two, made two finals. No, as you mentioned, it's list season. Uh, all the time when you want, you have time on your hands, so you can start to look back and start ranking things. And that's what we're going to be doing on today's Great Shot podcast. As I mentioned, this is Ben's third time on the pod, and I sent a choking text to him. The only good trilogies, the Dark Knight trilogy. I'll stand by all three Matrixes. I really enjoyed them all, although I guess age-wise it sort of lined up weird for me. Uh, I like the the second three, but the first three Star Wars, again, those are the three I watched growing up. But this is our third podcast with Ben, and we are going to continue the topic of the first two, talking about the next-gen players who, throughout the 2010s, stood out the most, were the most impressive, and uh, you know, much like your criteria of the 10 uh, players who defined the decade, Ben, I, I want to ask you here, because if you go strictly by results, it's not as fun. So the category we wanted to talk about today are the next-gen players that presented the most potential. As you're projecting into the 2030s, uh, into the 2030s, into the 2020s, these are the players yeah. uh, that we think are going to have the most success. And I'm curious for you, as you are coming up with your list, what were you thinking about? Well, first of all, it is weird to me once you said that, that some of these players will be playing the 2030s, which makes me feel really old <laughs> compared, compared to them. Coco Golf will be uh, 25. That's crazy. Wow, yeah, Coco Golf will be 25 and 20. <laughs> yikes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yikes. Okay, um, yeah, wow. Uh, 
Yeah. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I was just I was just looking at basically people who did and and I'll be honest, there's probably lots of great players in the 2020s, great like future next gen players who I'm not aware of. I have not paid super close attention to current junior tennis. So these are most of people who have done things at ATP level uh, for the most part. Uh, who have caught my eye in various ways and who have mostly proven that they have hints of what it could take to be uh, big time alphas in the future. And so some of these picks will be pretty obvious for the most part. And we'll try to mix in a little bit of a little bit of spiciness for you at the end. <laughs> Absolutely. And for the listeners, the obvious stats, win-loss record on the ATP Tour. How have you done at the Slams, the Masters? How many titles, if any, do you have on your career? What's your record not only against, you know, the big four or top ten opponents, but also, for me, I looked at what's your record head-to-head with all of these next-gen guys? Because, you know, even though a lot of them, when next-gen for you listeners, as always, the definition born after me, born 1996, or later. Uh, again, I'm going to be selfish while I can. Uh, but what's the record against their contemporaries? Because we've been fortunate enough to see, you know, I think Medvedev and Tsitsipas have played six times. I think Zverev and Medvedev have played uh, a bunch of times. So we've seen Tsitsipas FA, a bunch of these permutations of these rivalries. And so that matters in terms of making these lists because these are the players you're going to have to beat. And as you mentioned, Ben, uh, if we went strictly by results, it's pretty obvious the guys we're going to talk about. So let's start there, get those out of the way, and then we can start getting spicy. Uh, I divided sure. it, as always, into tiers. And so for my tier one, uh, I defined it as guys who, if by January 1st, 2030, these players don't have Grand Slams, I would be absolutely shocked. It would be baffling to me, given what we've seen over the course of these last few years of this decade, if these guys don't emerge with at least one, two titles. And uh, for me, Ben, I put four players in this tier. Does that sound about right for you? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm following your lead. So I also put my my top four in tier one, <laughs> although it could be it could be bigger, honestly, because I, I do think there is there. And I, we talked about this in this de- last decade, too. We had this whole thing, which we called the Ronich rule, mm-hmm. which where Milos Ronch is going to win a slam because the bar for what it took to win a slam would get lower after the big four faded, except for the big four pretty much forgot to fade and Milos Ronch never won a slam. So it sucked for him. But I think that, yeah, so I think there can be more. I think the big four, I think we can confidently say none of them will make the 2030, I think. Uh, What if Djokovic gives up gluten Djokovic is the one who I pause on. He would be, he'd be 42 in 2030. Oh my God. but, uh, yeah, I don't think he's going to be there. Yeah. We'll find out. And it'll be interesting to see as well. You mentioned Milos Raonic. Uh, one of the defining things for me in putting these players in Tier 1 as opposed to Tier 2, because it's not just the next-gen guys they're going to compete with. It is the you know Dominic team was a big guy I looked at head-to-head mm-hmm. results with, or even a Milos Raonic, a Gofen, a Dimitrov, who, if the big four go away, that window opens for them just as much as it opens for any of these next-gen guys. And I think there are four players who have really shown uh, that, you know, regardless Regardless of the opponent, whether it's uh, Federer, Djokovic, whatever, or uh, those guys a little bit lower, that they are going to be at the top of the game. And the four guys I have are Alex Zverev, Daniil Medvedev, Stefano Tsitsipas, and FAA in that order. And I guess let's start there. Would you agree those are the four, and would you put it in that order? Uh, No. I mean, my my four is not that off. My four is uh, Tsitsipas... Zverev, Medvedev, and then I bump up my guy, uh, Yannick Sinner, oh who my. I realize, 
who let's get real spicy real early and the spice is definitely ginger because um yeah like i am so incredibly sold on center and i know there's like not much out there but i was having dinner with somebody at the french open this year french open so let's be clear how early in the year this was and they were and they were asking like of current players who haven't won a slam yet like who's going to finish with the most slams and my answer was the annex center i am such a believer um, and felt so, and it was really weird because Sinner had been this kind of like indie cult hit player for a while this spring, uh, when he started rising to the rings and playing on, you know, televised challenger courts for the first time was, he's brand new, let's be clear. Um, but yeah, but seeing him kind of go mainstream by winning Milan and making his run in Antwerp, I think was, uh, was kind of surreal. So, but I, but I'm a huge believer in Sinner and would be honestly the kind of like, way which he goes about things i expect nothing but massive things for sinner so it took a lot of restraint alex for me not to put sinner number one on my list <laughs> of my top four but he he just i put him at the bottom of my top four but he could still surpass and absolutely destroy all these people all right let's absolutely start there and right off the bat west off i need a hot take sizzle because that is the sort of takes we were looking for to end the decade uh yeah yannick so there's a recency bias, certainly a joke to make here because obviously a lot of what you're going off of, a lot of what all of these fans of Yannick Sinner, uh, who it's undeniable how strong he was to end the year, are going off of, is how well he played these final six months in particular. Uh, because this was not a guy who played a lot of junior tournaments, but that's also part of his appeal. Uh, he's focused for so long on just playing these futures events, on getting to the professional level. And obviously at age 18, for him to put together the run he did at the end of the season, uh, even starting at the challenger level, he goes semifinals uh, at the start of October. Then he goes to Antwerp, makes the semifinals of the 250 there. Second round at the 500 in Vienna, goes and wins a challenger the next week to end his season. Finds himself inside the top 80. I mean, yes, he's a redhead, so I, I see the appeal, but yeah, the, mm-hmm. the firepower is there. I mean, both wings, he went to the next-gen finals and dominated. I mean, it was just shocking the way he took it to Diminuer in that final, especially how well Diminuer had been playing down the home stretch indoors on a hard court. Just the guy seemed to be able to rip winners at will. But it's only been one, you know, brief stretch. So I have him on my tier two, and I thought that was spicy. I was like, all right, I'm going to put him in tier two because he was too good, and, you know, he's 18, so there's a lot of time still to watch with him. He'll be 28 at the end of uh, the next decade, which, again, very, very young. But tier one, I just haven't seen enough. Here's the thing. Let me – back in my day, you talk about when you were born, how you define things. I was born in 1987. <laughs> Which is which is the last great tennis year in terms of births that we've had on this planet it's true. so far to be proven, right? We had, you know, Djokovic, Murray, Sharapova, Ivanovic, a few more other, like, top ten type players. Like, it was great. Like, and back in my day, people used to be able to do things at young ages. <laughs> we weren't sort of grading on these curves. And for me, like, with due respect to even, like, I don't want to say that, like, Zverev is over the hill. But he's had a few years and a few chances where he's been kind of in the mix and hasn't gotten it done. Sinner has, like, been nothing but success. <laughs> All we have in his sample is, like, wow, amazing. And there's really nothing to temper that expectation for me so far. Um, I've seen him play on all three surfaces i was one of the few people at the legendary first round qualifying match at wimbledon between yannick sinner and alex bolt which is my pick for match of 2019 everyone else who was there agrees it was 
unreal quality that match uh made me so happy uh it was a i think it went like 12 10 in the third of that qualifying it was it was quality was exceptionally good and then center avenged it a few weeks later by winning lexington final over alex bolt um but yeah like i just think that like there is someone could be good enough to where they come out and win a grand slam again at like 19 20 21 years old i don't think that era is necessarily gone i think if you think that's impossible i think you're just you know kind of a quitter and we shouldn't lower the bar to where people talk about like Dominic team being the future when he's 26. Like, no, like that's, you know, like, come on people. Let's, let's still believe in what's possible out there and believe that Yannick Sinner <laughs> can do big, extraordinary things. Cause like, yeah, okay. The sample we do have, let's talk about Milan where that was a ton of pressure on him. He was the poster boy for that event. It was like a home tournament. It's a weird format against a lot of other great players. And that's a lot of pressure. And all he did was get better, get better, strategically tank the dead rubber, get better, and get better. Like, that's a savvy, veteran-style playing right there. And he just demolished uh, Dominar in the final. And that's not really an XO, because there's a lot of money at stake. So, XO, debatable de- definition of that. All that is to say, Yannick Sinner, it's been nothing but impressed me. And, uh, yeah, I think that he, I think there's no reason to think he can't be incredibly awesome if he stays healthy and keeps progressing because all the weapons are there he plays the way speaking of the trash on Zverev more but he when I watch him he plays like the way everyone wishes Zverev would play like the way Federer tells Zverev to play in those viral coaching timeouts that go around all the time like that's how Sinner actually is when Sinner like meets when sorry when Federer meets Sinner he's probably gonna dump Zverev and just be like I found a better a better prospect here Sorry, Sasha. <laughs> now, look, the Sin Man is certainly talented. And the fact that he didn't – all of the results uh, that he earned for himself, the rise up the rankings, it was not the result of him getting a bunch of wild cards because he was this highly esteemed, you know, well-taken-care-of uh, product. He worked his way through the Futures and the Challengers. He played his first professional – or got his first professional ranking point in February of 2018. And by the start of 2019, he was already in the top 600 now to go from ranked – outside of the top 500 to end your season in the top 78 that's an astronomical jump but you know and grass is never going to be a huge portion of the season so that doesn't really matter but you look at his sample size from 2019 across the various surfaces yeah 39 and 12 on hard courts that's ridiculous 17 and 8 on the clay that's really solid uh two and three on the grass again small sample size but he was good having seen him on grass like it was not a problem for him yeah. Like he his game was like translating to it. That that one match that I saw him play on grass was was legitimately very, very impressive. Yeah. And the term fearless comes to mind. Clearly the moment was not too big for him, but I mean why okay, so him in tier one, I again I you've made the case why I would even have him below, you know, the obvious of the Zverev, the Medvedevs, the Sitsi passes is just how good they have been for prolonged periods of times. For Zverev, a uh, couple of stretches. He had an eight tournament stretch in twenty seventeen. Uh and you know, keep in mind that's two years ago where he went, won the title in Munich, Madrid Masters quarterfinal Rome Masters title where he beat Djokovic, lost first round of the French Opens, not great, uh, semifinals in the Netherlands, but then Halle final, Wimbledon fourth round, City Open title, Montreal Masters title. Yannick Sinner hasn't done that 
at the you know the 500, the Masters level, and he hasn't had the opportunities. But you know, Orfers Zverev in 2018, the Miami final, Monte Carlo semifinal, Munich title, Madrid Masters title, Rome Masters final, French Open quarterfinal. That may not be you know number one in the world stretch of period, but that's a top five stretch. There's a reason Zverev has gotten to number three in the world. You look at how good Medvedev was in his what was it like six, seven, eight tournament stretch down the home run mm. where he threw in an eight you know Saint Petersburg 250 just because he wasn't losing and got a title there as well as a couple his first two masters titles and that city open final as well um and that doesn't even mention the u.s open i just i haven't seen enough from sinner and i i'm i love being optimistic that's half the reason we do this podcast but i don't think it's i'm not ready to be that optimistic about sinner in comparison to some of these other guys well let me let me let me let me point this at you a different way which is let's put our two discrepancies head to head right so we have three of the same people on our list and then you have felix and i have sinner okay felix to me has had again not a big sample set but when he's been on these big stages has he been impressive so because to me no master semi-final in miami impressive you look at okay but once he got there that was a bad match yeah that's true he didn't play great there but i mean what he did at the 250 level this year i mean it wasn't just uh that stretch he had in south america where i think he went like quarterfinal final final i'm trying to look through it right now um on the clay or in rio in sao paulo he went finals of rio quarterfinal sao paulo round of 32 indian wells but then semifinals miami i mean that's like a six-week stretch of high level atp results and then you count in the fact, what was he? He's the youngest player to win a challenger until he was the youngest player to win an ATP event since Rafa. And he's the youngest to do all of these various things in these different categories. He has the junior pedigree. If you watch him in person, you think a jet is taking off when he's hitting forehands in practice. <laughs> it's just, di- and, and I haven't seen Sinner in person, but certainly when you're watching him, uh, matches of him oh. on camera, you know, that's, that passes the eye test as well. But Alex, you got to see Sinner in person, man. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I just wanted to fly to Europe at the end of the year to go watch him in a challenger, but it just turns out I can't. Um, but mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he is cautiously optimistic, is what I would say about both FAA and Sinner. But FAA has just proven it. I mean, what's he ending the year at? He's already world number twenty-one at age nineteen. I mean, that's crazy. Okay, it's good, but just to keep pushing back on this, like he, he yes, the I watching. Felix up close, like I watched his match for the this episode, kind of special. Uh, Felix against Hercatch at Miami this year it was like front row with Ricky Diamond taken in every point of that it was beautiful. But at the same time, like we're not talking about like who's going to do well and get into the top twenty by picking up points at two fifties. We're talking about who's going to be like a big stage Haas, right? And to me, like that Felix has a lot of work to do to prove that because like he hasn't had like a signature win in his in his time yet and i, I feel like felix kind of already has that see what about the wins over, already, I mean, what about the Yannick wins already has that. yeah but what about the wins over Pass? where i know Pass is young but i mean those first two wins faa had at him at the beginning of the year yeah that was just like he it looked like he owned him and Pass says yeah you know in the press conference i've never played anyone as good as faa and they talk about their junior matchups and you know he's got some other wins over guys like dimitrov Puli rayonic which isn't great but he's 19 he hasn't had that many chances no, I get it, but just like him, like seeing him, and he's like what, like zero and three or zero and four in finals now, Something at ATP like level. So I mean, like this, I'm, I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate here, but like I, I think that there's like, and and the slam record is not good either. Again, small sample set so far, but 
you know, like I just don't see things in him. And I realize Sinner is zero and one in slam main draws. <laughs> I was going to say, how many finals has Sinner made at the ATP level? I don't think any yet. Well, if you count Milan, it, we'll true. count that That's one. That's true. But true. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just felt like Felix did this. They did this thing in Felix's development where they kept him pretty actively under the radar. Like he really kept going for like small tournaments. Like he would play umag and stuff like that just kind of going way off the beaten path uh and last year especially or sorry 2018 especially and you know i i I still think there's a little bit to to prove i think in terms of how he handles like big match expectations because you know like his loss to ugo and bear at wimbledon was not good getting destroyed by shapovalov at the u.s open this year was not good and that's sort of what we've seen happen with him when he's been, you know, a guy, I think he was seated at Wimbledon, like a, you know, seated player uh, getting more expectations. And so I, I, I think the fundamentals of his game and his strokes and everything are there. It's just like we have, I think there's a, I have a, I have more question marks that have been raised by his limited data set than I do with sinners, even smaller, but a higher percentage of positive stuff in that small sample set. So that's fair, but to mention something you mentioned when complimenting Sinner at for a junior US Open champion to make his three professional finals thus far on clay and on the grass. I mean that bodes yeah. well across three surfaces for FAA. His game, the aggression he can play with, the athleticism he can play with out of corners, his willingness to move forward. The first serve in particular, I think the second serve we would all agree, uh still needs some work for Felix yeah. as any nineteen yeah. year old would. Uh he's only he won forty nine percent of his second serve points on the year. Um, 318 double faults uh, thus far in his career. Let me see what that was in 2019. It was 247 on the ATP uh, level. That's you know that's a lot of double faults. But the firepower. I mean, you you talk about the willingness to move forward. I know Sinner has it in spades, and he hasn't really struggled yet for a prolonged period. So it'd be interesting to see how he would adapt his game to maybe him struggling a little bit confidence wise. But FAA, despite the early health concerns, I just every tool in the book I see from him. Can I make one more spicy pick on oh, this front? Always. I will, Opelka? I will pick Sinner. Oh. No, 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 no. We're getting, getting just between these two players. Oh, okay. I will pick. This is a stupid pick, but I will pick Sinner to finish 2020 ranked ahead of, of Felix. Okay, and my follow-up to that. First of all, great spice, but the follow-up. Are they both inside the top 20? What does that range uh, look like? Uh, you know, I don't know. We'll find out. <laughs> Sinner ends the year 101. The Felix signs are only telling me two things. I, I only see two sort of bodies in motion i can't tell you where they are in space but i just see sinner ahead of felix there that's so funny all right well then uh that's the bottom of the tier argument i do want to quickly go on zero medvedev and Pass because obviously those are three players listeners have grown accustomed to hearing as three and particularly the way medvedev ended the season as three of the up-and-comers three of the most likely heir apparents to win that next grand slam uh, obviously alongside of Dominic team, but I'm curious for you, Ben, because again, you were up close with all of these players uh, throughout this season and Zverev certainly didn't have the 2019 he wanted. I would say Tsitsipas had the start he wanted and the finish, but not the middle parts. And then Medvedev mm-hmm. obviously finishing as strong as anyone, but given, you know, what you saw from those three guys, another year of sample uh, of, of sample matches from them, uh, you know, how did you leave 2019 thinking about those three as a cohort? More excited, less excited, uh, just in general? A thousand percent more excited for Medvedev, who I really don't think had been 
too high on people's radars or talked about lists for being someone in this kind of echelon this time last year. I mean, like, really, um, the match that sort of woke me up to Medvedev and his potential was his Australian Open loss to Djokovic. Which, had it not been for that Rafa-Medvedev final, might have been my favorite match at a slam this year. It was great. I mean, and he was the only person who pushed Djokovic in that tournament. Djokovic destroyed everybody in that tournament, particularly mm-hmm. Rafa in the final. Um, and, yeah, and Medvedev just made him work and made him, like, hurt and just made it look – was really, really impressive. He also – this was less noticeable at the time, notable at the time because of how Murray was doing, but he also killed Murray before that in Brisbane. Um, but Medvedev, uh, Medvedev really showed up to play this year and really put himself in the conversation. So that's the most exciting – of the three, I mean, Sitsipas had finished 2018 by winning Next Gen, uh, and Zverev had finished 2018 by winning London. So th- th- we both knew they were going to be coming, and I think by those standards, you know, like you said, I think Zverev probably did have it disappointing by the standards he set year in 2019. Uh, Sitsipas progressed, but nothing, with the exception of the London title, maybe, which I think was kind of a little bit out of nowhere in his trajectory this year. Nothing he did was too, too shocking, I don't think. Because I think people had already really thought very highly of Tsitsipas. Yeah. Um, Medvedev is the one who I think really changed his narrative this year. Yeah, certainly for Tsitsipas beating Federer in that fourth round at the Australian Open. I don't know. I, you know, People expected him to make another jump after the way he ended 2018. But to do it that quickly, that set the tone for what was the first, what, four, you know, through the French Open for him where he was a top three player. That's why he ended the year so high on the ATP wins list. Yeah. Yeah, and then totally. and then for Zverev, I'm going to push back on you. Just or not push back because certainly it was a disappointing year. But why I still have him at the top of this tier, and this is where I had him when we did this the first time. This is where I had him when we did this last year. And as an Alex Zverev believer, maybe it's because I'm a former Murray fan and I just like being hurt. Um, but you look at the results. Former. He had- what did Murray do to piss you off? Uh, that's no, sorry, a former Murray diehard. It's now not I've dead, well, Alex. No, I know, but I've calmed in my fandom because I'm a okay. part of the media now, Ben. Unlike you, I don't let my bias. You no, know, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that was an uncalled for shot. I feel like that's a particularly sensitive one. So that was uncalled for. I didn't mean that. No, I, 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 I'm not bothered. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, you take way worse heat. But for Alex Virov, here's why I'm encouraged. Because even in a year where so many things went wrong, you look at his results at the Slam. Another quarterfinal under his belt at the French Open. Yeah, he lost uh, in straight sets to Djokovic in a not impressive fashion, but still with the pressure of that's where he's made a quarterfinal before he gets that done. He makes the fourth round of the U.S. Open again, loses in disappointing fashion to Schwartzman. 14 sets in his first three matches, but I like that he struggles through a first week and ends up on the other side of it in the fourth round. Uh, Wimbledon this year, disaster losing, I think, to Vesley, who, you know, former world junior number one, sneaky good grass player, but still... not a bad loss. Yeah, in context, but not a great loss uh, by any means. But the things that continue to excite me is you look at his results. You know, at the end of the year, he makes that Shanghai Masters run. He does get a title at a 250 event this year. Um, but for me, most importantly, you look at his record against you know, his biggest contemporaries over these past couple of years. And whether it's the big four, you know, he's one of those rare guys, four and three against Roger Federer. He's won the last two matchups, two and three against Novak Djokovic. He's lost the last two, but still two and three, given it's the decade of no lay. Uh, that, that's pretty good. Uh, one and five against Rafa, not great, but he did just get his first win against him there. And then the one you don't like, two and six against team, but, you know, five and one against Medvedev, two and oh against FAA, four and oh against Dimenauer. 
three and one against Shapovalov, three and zero oh against Rublev, two and one against Berrettini. I, you know, I excluded the Tsitsipas one and four record from that list. But generally, of this next gen cohort, he's been the leader. He's faced the most pressure, and he's usually responded. I will say on the one thing that jumped out at me there: the one and five against Nadal is one and five, right? Yeah. Like those are there were a couple of really tight losses within those five losses so that's the one that's probably the most like misleading just on paper for him that indian wells match where he when he was you know still a, a young giraffe and he had his <laughs> like volley to to win uh and ducked it in the net uh that one and then the one in the rome final too where zverev had all the momentum and then a rain delay came and took it away from him in the third set um those are you know those are tough losses and i think I mean, the reason that like I, I still have I didn't knock Zverev out of my top four is that I, I just think that he's still that good. Just like mm-hmm. less about results, honestly, for me with Zverev, and more just about eye test. Like he still knows how to play tennis. Like the fundamentals of his game are still so strong. Um he will figure things out. He has a whole decade we're giving him to accomplish this, which is a, <laughs> a nice amount of time, um, one would hope. And so, you know, he can still hit great backhands, be an aggressive player. It's just it's just about getting the right mm-hmm. gear and getting the right coaching voice. And I think I think I think maybe that's going to be the thing for him. I mean, I know he's had success with his dad, but I do think they're, you know, the right kind of super coach yeah. for, for Zverev, which, and he's had a couple go real badly. Let's, let's point out with, with Lendl and with uh, Ferrero, both of which ended pretty acrimoniously, which is not a good sign for what it's like to be on team Zverev, honestly. But um, yeah, I, I just think that he is the, the raw pieces, are, which are not even that raw, but the ingredients are, are so strong with him. Yeah. That uh, which which I also put in Tsitsipas in the same category, you know, like you just look at these guys and what they are as athletes and as players, and it's why would you would ever bet against them, giving them a window like we are of the next forty Grand Slams to win one. Yeah. And I like their chances. Alex Vera of 1997, age-wise, he'll line up next decade with how Djokovic did this decade. And I mean, you know, mm. 2011, 2012, 2015, that's when Djokovic really poured it on. So Zverev, age-wise, plenty of time to not, you never hold those expectations up to him. And of course, Djokovic had the early Australian Open title. But yeah, I'm really happy you mentioned the eye test because all of these guys in tier one for very different reasons. Alex Zverev is a 2020 modern day player. He's six you know, over six foot four, so proficient from the baseline off of both wings, although the forehand obviously still gives him some trouble, but just a a dynamic athlete, huge first serve. He is a 2020s, you know, modern day player. Um, For Tsitsipas, it's all the reason, you know, the shot making, the aggression, the flair to move forward, the diving volleys, all of these things. Uh, FAA, just the raw firepower. I mean, again, watch him play, listen to the sound the ball makes when he makes contact with it. It's just different than anyone else. And then a guy who got so much conversation uh, centered around him in, during the tennis season, especially at the end of the year. But I just want to mention real quick before we get to the spice of Tier 2, the guy who I believe you mentioned this, and we talked about it a little bit when I saw you at Cincinnati when I think you were writing a story on him, uh, but also just uh, throughout the year, obviously, we've talked about just stylistically so different. Daniil Medvedev. And I think that's the thing I like the most about these four players in Tier 1 is stylistically, they're all a little bit different, and the contrasts make for great tennis. Yeah, no, Medvedev's a lot of bit different from, from <laughs> yeah. everybody. And, that, and and almost, he's the one of my four who I'm almost maybe the least sure of, just because I did feel like everything completely came together mm-hmm. in, um, in the second half of 2019 for him. But things are still... You know, with his game, you could also see it falling apart because it is like his kind of game. That sort of like 
counter-punchy, junk-volley kind of game. Like, when it's not on, it can get real ugly real fast. Um, and so his his fundamentals are the least solid of these four or five. If you want to put Sinner and Felix in this group together, people we're talking about here. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, but at the same time, his his battling is incredible, and everything that he did, you know, I, I all I did was see him just win and win and win and win this year for the most part. So, um, and even that match against Nadal, that final against Nadal, like he his ability to make that competitive after it really wasn't for the beginning of that match. I think people kind of glot through talking about, oh, great match, great match, but like. First hour and a half of that wasn't particularly great, but he hung in there, and uh, and made it uh, made it competitive, which is the magic of best of five, you know. So, um, yeah, he he's uh, he's someone who I would definitely pick to do well too. He's not he's someone who I think I would like to see for purposes of prognosticating him here. I'd want to see him make his move earliest. I would have kind of the least patience with him if he hasn't like won a Grand Slam by like twenty twenty three. Uh, my optimism for him would probably sour quicker than it would for the other ones on this list. Yeah, uh, you look again at the records for him. Uh, 0-3 against Fed, 0-3 against Nadal, 2-3 against Djokovic, but 1-2 against Dominic Team. Uh, yeah, again, he, I was burned by Stefan Kozlov throughout this decade. I just After I saw him at age 12 in 2010, I was like, that's the guy who come 2020 is going to be the American player to watch. And this is almost him, you know, 3.0 version, a little bit taller, a little bit stretched out. But yeah, just funky. And on those hard courts, end of the year, everyone's tired, physically worn out. Uh, that's the last thing in the world you want to play against. And so Daniil Medvedev did look so good over the last couple of months. Uh, but again, I, I, I do want to ask you, you said Dominic Team not being the future. I think that's a very good point because there's a lot of younger players than him who have showed tremendous talent. Uh, but for these guys, for FAA, I don't know if he's played Team yet, but for Tsitsipas, you look at his record against Dominic Team. He's 3-4 and four for Daniil Medvedev. His record uh, yep. sits right now at, I believe, sorry, I'm sure, 1-2. And, and then for Zverev, he's 2-6 and six against Team. Uh, do you consider these guys right now playing at a level similar to Team, or do you think Team does have a leg up on them? To be clear, when I say, I, I don't think I said team isn't the future. No, I no, said no. He's, I, not he's young. the face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I just don't think that he's like because people talk about him as like the next yeah great thing person, but like, like okay. but he's also he's also already twenty six, mm-hmm, exactly. Which just like you know in in back in my day would would have been like <laughs> on the tail end of his career, or you know on the on the least on the back half of his career, put mm-hmm. it that way. Um, you know, like Andy Roddick who was out of the sport by thirty. Um, so you know, and I hope and I would love to see teams stick around longer than that obviously um but yeah i mean team and that's the thing like like you mentioned before with, with like team dimitrov who just made a us 11 semifinal. you know there's a few other guys who are like who are not big four and who are not next gen by your definition of being younger than you who will still have things to say about how tennis goes in the 2020s you know there are still people in that in-between group and we saw this throughout the last decade that there are people, guys making older breakthroughs than before whether it's favrinka whether it's uh, in 2018, I think the last the the two first time qualifiers for the London World Tour Finals were Anderson and Isner, who were both in their 30s. Like you know, so there, yeah, there's there's what guys are breaking through much later, and I think that will continue, and we'll have some people, you know, whether it's uh I don't know, throw out some names that are not really meaning anything, but like whether it's like a, a Schwarzman or or a Pui, exactly, I was gonna say Pui or like uh, Pear or. Whoever else is in that kind of age group where, like, they just make a better push a jack when they get to 30, 31, 32. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious on a different conversation to see 
what Jack does next. I think he will have. He's definitely an interesting person for 2020 to follow. I do not know where he'll play next. I mean, I don't know what he's going to do. I mean, on a very basic level with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I imagine he would get some challenger wild cards if he wanted them, but I'm not sure. Yeah, um, he might not. He also probably shouldn't do that. He should probably go learn how to win tennis matches again at the futures. Yeah, there's. I mean, Jack Sock is. You're right. His own podcast, and on our mini break, we're previewing our most interesting players heading into 2020. Uh, and he's definitely a guy we have scheduled for later. Maybe Ben oh, yeah. will get you back on that podcast uh, if you want to. You know, if you're ready to do another 30 with me. But um, yes, I, I think to your point, these guys we talked about in tier one have already showed that level where they are as close as anyone outside of the big four to emerging as the next Slam champion. Hope you enjoyed listening to part one of our GSP Best of the Decade podcast, looking at the next-gen ATP players and those who hold the most promise heading into the 2020s with Ben Rothenberg. Obviously, whenever Ben comes on the podcast, we're going to try and chat with him as long as we can to hear his expertise, his many opinions, because again, he is such an entertaining guest, and we always appreciate having him on, so thank you, Ben. But, uh, you know, this it's a big conversation, so for part two, we'll talk about our tier two guys, other players who maybe we're not quite as confident confident on as those first five and how could you be you know Tsitsipas, Medvedev, uh, Zverev, FAA, and Yannick Sinner really you know all so promising for so many reasons but there are a bunch of other young players who have looked really good in the 2010s and leave a lot for us as tennis fans to be excited about moving into the 2020s so be on the lookout for those conversations in part two we'll see if this makes it to a part three very possible the way uh i believe it's about a two-hour podcast so we'll see how Westoff wants to split it up but uh, again a lot more to be discussed later in the week so be on the lookout for that be on the lookout for other content as well throughout our various crack rackets podcast platforms on the Cracked Interviews podcast, our College Contender Series still underway. We've had coaches from TCU, UNC, USC, Baylor. Uh, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm forgetting names at this point. Mississippi State. And then there's one more. Who's the last one? UNC, USC, Baylor. Oh, and who we did last week, of course. My UVA Hughes and Andres Pedroso, and we have Florida coming up this week, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, on the mini break, we're continuing our off-season preview, looking at those players we're most excited about heading into 2020 season specifically. Uh, so I believe the uh, released alongside of this podcast will be a mini break we conducted with Mikhail Torpegard talking about his 2019 and projecting him into 2020. It's really fun to get to do that exercise with a player. And then, of course, above all else, for you listeners who must be well aware by now, our Aero Bar giveaway our newest sponsor, Aerobar, a tennis-specific energy bar for you listeners, uh, have been kind enough as part of their new sponsoring of this pod to give us a signed John Racket, uh, a signed John Isner racket as a giveaway to help our listeners get into the Christmas spirit. And of course, is their way of saying thank you for promoting their product on the pod. Although we would promote it without the racket, anyways, because again, these Aerobars so delicious, more potassium than a banana, unmeltable chocolate. I mean, you can leave that thing in your bag through a nuclear holocaust, and it's going to survive. And you know, the way 2020 is going, if there's not a new next-gen champion at the Slams, I may produce a nuclear holocaust on this podcast. So listeners, load up on your Aero bars while you can and get 30% off all you 
you do it with our promo code CRACKED30, C-R-A-C-K-E-D-3-0. Uh, but again, if you want to sign up to have a chance to win that John Isner racket, maybe use it as a gift to give to your significant other, to your doubles partner, whomever. You know, for me, those two terms are interchangeable because Max Rothman is both my significant other and my doubles partner, and that's the way our doubles partnership works so successfully. Uh, but to get yourself signed up, leave a review on this podcast, the Mini Break, our Cracked Interviews podcast. Leave your name or a way for us to contact you in the handle. If you leave multiple reviews across the podcast, we will enter your name into the raffle X amount of times for however many reviews you leave us. But go get that signed up because you don't want to be left, you know, aimless. Instead of listening to this podcast when you're Christmas shopping, you can be listening to this podcast from the comforts of your own couch as you're on Amazon ordering up your final set of aero bars and, you know, knowing that you have that John Isner racket on the way for you. So listeners, uh, go give that a sign up. Also, before we go, you listeners are well aware of my appreciation for our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, who have a f- an editing job to do as always because I... I mean, they must go through like 17 hours of podcast footage a week and just, you know, they cut half my nonsense. They do all of the kind things that we love them so much for. So shout out to them as always. But for our lovely co-host today, Ben Rothenberg of the New York Times, of Racket Magazine, of the No Challenges Remaining podcast, for our super producers, Max Ligner and Daniel Westhoff, and from our entire teams at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. And you know what we say? Hey, great shot. And we will see you for this uh, for part two of this conversation later in the week. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.